All right, so continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And just a little bit of a heads up for where we're going. Right after spring break, Dr. Buckner is going to be preaching for us, and he's going to take us back to Mark 5. But uh, we are wrapping up the first kind of half of Mark. We're in Mark 7 tonight, and in Mark 8, there's a massive shift on, uh, from the focus of the work of Jesus, of, of the things that he's doing among people, the healings, the, the different things that we've seen so far. There's a shift from focusing on that to focusing on Jesus' journey to the cross and to his eventual death and his resurrection. But before we get there, we need to see how Jesus' ministry and mission was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Because so far, what we've seen is Jesus has done a bunch of amazing things within the Jewish community that he was ministering to. But tonight is a, is a pretty shocking story, or would have been a very shocking story to Jesus' original Jewish hearers, and we're going to look at why. Uh, in part because the Jews were the chosen ones. They were the protectors of the promises of God. They were the ones who had the law. They were the ones who understood the rituals and the sacrifices and all those different things. And when I was trying to think about something to kind of help us understand this tension, uh, all I could think about was the rivalry between Draco, Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter. Because think about it. Draco's family was the purebloods. They, they were the ones that, that believed that only, the only proper wizards were the, one, were the ones who it had been in their blood forever and ever, and they were the purebloods, they were the true wizards. And here comes Harry, this no-name kid, who came from this completely unnotable family and had no business being there at Hogwarts. Not only that, Harry was associating with mudbloods. That he was hanging out with uh, people who were not pure-blooded wizards. And they, and they hated each other. And it's kind of a, a driving thing throughout the whole series of, of books. And that's kind of what's happening with the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were the purebloods. They were the ones who could trace their history all the way back to Abraham, the great patriarch of their faith. And the Gentiles, as far as they could, as far as they could see, were just the absolute worst. And so I want us to consider, um, some, some weeks these have been our three points, some weeks they've kind of been our, our, our conclusion, our application, but tonight I want us to consider our three questions that we are looking at the book of Mark through. Who is Jesus? What is he like? And why is he worth following? So if you want to take notes or follow along, those are going to be the three points. Who is Jesus? What is he like? Why is he worth following? So this first question, who is Jesus? And Jesus is showing us a lot about who he is and what his mission is. And it, we pick up right after our passage from last week, where uh, if you were here, you saw that Jesus was intentionally confronting the Pharisees on the different ritual cleansings and different things that they had put into place, not that were found in the Bible, in the Levitical law, but the ones that they had added on top of it to say, okay, so the Bible gives us the the the, the ideas, and we have kind of come up with the ways to follow those ideas. We're picking up right after that, and this passage begins by telling us where Jesus was. He's in the regions of Tyre and Sidon, as T just read for us. And he had left from Genesaret, which you see in, in 653. So he goes from, a, from an explicitly Jewish region to an explicitly Gentile region. 
And it's there that he meets this Syrophoenician woman. And all of this is pretty significant because the journey is pretty far out of Jesus' way physically. But spiritually, this would have been unheard of. That Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the one that has come to restore Israel. And, and the Jewish Messiah would have never intentionally gone to Gentile cities, Gentile countryside, to interact with people. And he goes there to try to hide out. It seems like the, the crowds have been, have been bugging him and he's, and he's getting tired. So he wants to go take a break. And, he, and, he, and, he find, and, and he's still found by this woman. And these names, Tyre, Sidon, Syrophoenicia, like they sound like descriptions of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but they were significant. Tyre had a long history of all the worst stuff. If you, if you go through the Old Testament, Tyre was the home of Queen Jezebel. In the second century, uh, they had joined in a war against the Jews. Ezekiel and Zechariah preached against the wealth and the terror of Tyre and Josephus, who was a great early historian, called the inhabitants of Tyre their bitterest enemies. And Sidon and the Decapolis kind of drive this point home a little further. And so Jesus is doing something very, very significant by going here. He's contrasting the teachers of Israel and the teachers of the law with the absolute worst people that the Israelites could have imagined. But he's gone from the best, and I know we tend to read the, the New Testament like, oh, the Pharisees are terrible. I would never be like them. But if you lived in that day, you'd be like, oh, man, there's the Pharisees. Like, get their autograph. Like, you would, you would love them. You would look up to them. You would admire them. And so you're going from that to the worst people that you can possibly imagine. That Jesus has crossed every imaginable border that the Jews would have put up between them and the pagan Gentile world. He crosses geographical boundaries, he crosses ethnic boundaries, he crosses gender boundaries, and he crosses theological boundaries. And on top of all of that, this woman has a daughter who's demon-possessed, which is as unclean as it gets. That this woman is as far from the kind of person that anybody would think that the Jewish Messiah would come to minister to and save, and yet here she is. And Mark tends to do this a lot. In his gospel, there's a very fancy theological concept that I went to seminary and learned so that I can impart this deep knowledge on you. And this is Mark's technique called a sandwich. He takes something, two things that are similar, and like puts them together and then puts a little explanation in the middle. And so you've got like a Markin sandwich, which is actually what our textbook called it. Um, the story of the Pharisees and the clean laws and these, story, these stories of this woman and the blind man, these are the pieces of bread, right? And then in the middle, they're built around the verses of the meat of verses 14 through 23, where Jesus explains that the clean laws do nothing for the condition of your heart. And that's the thing, is that this woman was as unclean and defiled as any person could possibly be in the eyes of good Jewish culture. And it's very likely that due to Tyre's proximity to kind of Jewish countryside, she would have known it. She would have known how unclean she was. And on top of that, when you go back and read the same story in Matthew, because Matthew also tells this story, but from a little bit different perspective, the disciples are asking Jesus, please send this woman away. Get her away from us. Get her out of our presence. But her response is way different than the Pharisees. That she hears Jesus' words in the parable that he tells. 
And she acknowledges that they're harsh words that Jesus has to say about her situation. And she still throws herself at his mercy. She still says, yes, but you, you can heal me. You can save my daughter. So who is Jesus? And what we see is that Jesus is the Messiah of the world, not just Israel. The kingdom of God is being offered to those people. Whoever those people are in your mind, the worst of those people that you could ever possibly imagine. But if you remember all the way back in week one, we also talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And, and that's one of the things that he's showing us with this blind, or with this deaf and mute man in the Decapolis. Because Mark uses a word for speech impediment for this man that is only used in one other place in the whole Bible, and that's in Isaiah 35. And if you go back to Isaiah 35, you actually see two amazing things that maybe point us directly to this story. And the first thing you see in Isaiah 35 is that the wilderness and the dry land will be glad, and they will be, uh, they will be rich, and they will be teeming with life. And it says specifically that the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. And that Lebanon became known as Tyre and Sidon. That this is the literal geographic part of the world that says the Messiah will bring life and joy and, and, and greenness and all those things. And here he is doing this for this deaf and mute man. But it also tells us that when the Messiah comes, the tongue of the mute, which is the same word for this guy, will sing for joy. And so what Mark is telling us is that this is who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of these prophecies that is bringing the light of God to the whole world, not just to the Jews. And this matters to us because the work of God is much, much bigger and broader than any of us can begin to imagine. You don't have to look hard throughout history to see how good we are as human beings of drawing lines between us and the other whoever the other may be. It exists everywhere in every culture. And it's this idea that we are the good people, they are the bad people, and we're the ones who are going to win in the end. We're the ones who are going to receive the blessing and the purification and all those different things. And I used this uh, from, uh, used this from uh, last week, but again, looking at David Brooks, uh, his book, How to Know a Person, he talks about this idea of the politics of recognition because remember, and what he's talking about there is that the idea that politics used to be about a, a debate among d differing viewpoints of how to divvy up social goods and services among the people who needed them the most. And he talks about the politics of recognition uh, being uh, attaching ourselves to the winning side in order to gain our validation through that, which is where we get all the vitriol and stuff that we have now. Um, and Brooks says that we turn to certain cultural markers that affirm us, give us status, and prop ourselves up. But these things end up grouping us in partisan tribes, but we're not actually connected with each other. Brooks applies this to politics, but I think it has to do with anything that we try to identify with in order to make ourselves pure. Brooks says this. He says, of course, the politics of recognition doesn't actually give you community and connection. People join partisan tribes, but they are not, in fact, meeting together serving one another, befriending one another. Politics don't make you a better person. It's about outer agitation, not inner formation. Politics don't humanize. 
If you attempt to assuage your sadness, loneliness, or enemy through politics, it will do nothing more than land you in a world marked by a sadistic striking for domination. You may try to escape a world of isolation and moral meaninglessness, only to find yourself in the pulverizing destructiveness of the culture wars. And here's the thing. I think that you can replace politics with anything. You can, take, you can change the word politics in this paragraph and add it to anything that you want to look at to try to make you whole, to try to make you pure, and you can say the exact same thing. Anything that we turn to in order to make ourselves pure and whole ultimately ends up destroying us. And we all want to do this. We want to find all the different ways that me and I and mine that we can be in and you and yours and theirs will be left out. But in Mark 1, way back in week 1, we talked about how Christ's message was simple. Repent and believe. And what Jesus is calling us to repent of by showing us this story with this woman and this deaf-mute man. He is calling us to turn away from our attempts to justify ourselves to turn to Him. Because it's His blood that makes us all clean, the proud Pharisee and the pagan alike. And this is His call to us. Repent of the ways that you've been trying to purify yourselves and believe that only Jesus can truly do that for you. And here's the thing, we we want that to be true. We want it to be true that someone, something outside of us can fix us, can make us right. But I think what this story particularly confronts us on is do we want it to be true for other people as well? Do we want it to be true for whoever the worst of the worst that we can imagine is? Because at the most foundational level, we have to understand that the call to repentance goes to all. The person that you think needs it the least and the person that you think deserves it the least. By showing us who Jesus is, this is the question that he's answering. But then, what is Jesus like? And I love this because Jesus is interacting very hands-on with people here. And we learn a lot about what he's like in these responses. So let's consider the woman first. That the woman comes to Jesus with a desperate request. Her daughter was possessed by a demon and needed healing. And Jesus responds to her with the parable that comes across as kind of mean um he says let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs doesn't that sound kind of harsh and a lot of people have tried to understand this they've tried to figure out what this means and there's actually uh, a couple years ago <clears throat> there's a um <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> there's a um i need some water i water over here Ah, that's better. Okay. Sorry about that. That's going to sound weird on the podcast. There's a podcast, by the way, so if you miss a sermon, it's there. Anyway, there's a, um, there's a TikTok video of a, I guess, decently well-known progressive pastor uh, trying to make the case from this passage that uh, by calling this woman a dog, uh, Jesus is committing the sin of racism, and that when she comes back at him and says, Uh, Yeah, but feed me anyway. Jesus actually ends up repenting of his racism. And this was encouraging to him because it shows that Jesus, I don't, I have no idea how it would be encouraging that Jesus would, would have committed a sin, but this guy thought it was. 
And, and, and it does come across as harsh, doesn't it? That, 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 that if you called somebody a dog, um, that would be less than kind. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have to make that case. But we have to remember something that, 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 that actually can't be what Jesus is doing. Like it's not, it's not possible that that's what Jesus is doing is being racist towards this woman. Um, because if you go through the gospels as Jesus is interacting with Gentiles, he is constantly affirming them. He is constantly bringing the gospel to them. He's constantly bringing his message, his healing. He's constantly saying that um, this is actually going to be extended to all the nations, not just the Jews. And so it's pretty intellectually lazy to assume that Jesus is being racist. However, calling somebody a dog doesn't carry a positive connotation. Like, let's just acknowledge that. Um, and, it, and it was common for rabbis to use the term dogs in reference to the Gentiles. So what's, what's going on here? And I think it's, I think it's fascinating because this is a, this is a reminder to us, but it's also an indictment on us because it's a reminder that the, it's a reminder to the world that Jesus was on mission first to the Jews and then to the world, but it's an indictment to the Jews and to the disciples who would have presumably seen this happen that this woman, a dog in the eyes of the Jewish world, was actually the first person in the Gospel of Mark to hear one of Jesus' parables and then respond to it correctly. She heard the parable and she understood. She immediately got what Jesus was saying. And it echoes back to Isaiah, who again prophesied that the Messiah would first restore the tribes of Jacob and then be a light to the nations. Because what happens is she hears the words of Jesus, and as harsh as they sound, she doesn't assert her rights. She does not say, no, Jesus, you will not talk to me that way. She threw herself at his mercy. And, and Martin Luther says that she took Christ in his own words. He treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. And Luther goes on to talk about how impressed he is with this woman's faith. And it's, it's the opposite of being harsh or racist or anything like that. Jesus is saying the news that I bring, the mission that I've come to accomplish is actually so much bigger and so much deeper than you ever could have imagined. That even this woman, this unclean, cut off, cast out woman, that she could be the recipient of God's grace. And y'all, we have to remember this because um, I can't speak for everybody, I guess, but I'm not an ethnic Jew. I don't have Jewish blood and I think probably most of us don't either. And so we have to see ourselves in this woman's shoes. It's like, we're the outsiders. We're the ones that Christ came. Uh, we're, we're, the, we're the world that Christ came into who have been grafted in by the blood of Jesus. And this interaction with this woman is simply a foretaste of what's to come when every tongue and every tribe is seated around his table forever. That it's, that it's the inclusion of us. But then we see something with this, uh, with this deaf man who has the speech impediment. And I love this. I mean, this is amazing. Um, Jesus' disciples bring this man to Jesus and Jesus heals him, but in a very different way than what we've seen in Mark so far. Because when Jesus has done miracles in Mark so far, it's kind of like, it's almost like he's bored with it. He's like, okay, like you see the storm. He's like, okay, whatever, shut up, stop. And the storm stops, right? And he, and he, and he, and he walks up and he's like, um, Buckner's going to tell us about the story uh, where Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. And he just kind of walks up and he's like, hey, get up, kid. 
And she gets up. Like he's just very, he's just very much like, speak it and move on. But here, Jesus pulls this man aside out of the audience. He puts his fingers in his ears and he spits on his fingers and touches his tongue. And then he looks up to the heavens and he lets out a sigh and he says, be open. Why does he do this? Why is it so different for this guy than it is for everything else that Jesus has done so far? And I think it's because Jesus knows that this man needs it. That this man needs this kind of personal touch, this kind of affection. Because think about it, as a a deaf man with a speech impediment, it's likely that this guy was a public spectacle. That everybody knew who he was, everybody would, would stare at him, they would see him as he was bumbling around on the street, and maybe he, maybe he was even a beggar that would have to go and sit at the gate. And by pulling Jesus aside, he's saying, you have my full attention, and I'm not going to let you be a spectacle for the crowd. And Jesus is not seeing him as a problem to be solved or an annoyance to be taken care of, but as a person to heal, as a man to love and to care about it, to care about. By touching him, Jesus is identifying closely with him and it's likely that this guy as as the the deaf and mute man that he was would have been exposed to all kinds of things that would have made him unclean and yet jesus still reaches out and touches him one writer says that love seeks intimacy and the touch of jesus is a tangible prelude of the fellowship that believers experience with him through faith that he's connecting with him on a physical and a personal level. And then, and then by sighing, Jesus looks up and he sighs. And a better translation could be that Jesus, that Jesus moaned. And I think what Mark is communicating to us is that his heart went out to this man. That he understood his isolation and his hurt and his pain and he was with him in it. And here's why that matters. Because Jesus doesn't just make a quick pitch to this guy and walk off. Hey, be healed. I'm out. He doesn't do that. He doesn't make a public spectacle out of his healing to look, hey, everybody, look at this guy. Look, hey, y'all know him. He's deaf. He can't talk. Watch this. No, he pulls him aside. He says to him, I know you. I love you. I care about you. In fact, Jesus is always doing this. The idea was prevalent that unclean things touching clean things defiled them. And yet here is Jesus, the cleanest of them all, purifying and healing people by his touch. And y'all, this is a big deal. Because Jesus doesn't see you as simply a number or a statistic. He doesn't doesn't see you as a a number on on a list of salvations or rededications or gospel interactions or whatever it is that we call them now. He doesn't see you as a a, a nameless or a faceless individual in a crowd who who raises your hand when the preacher asks you to, whether that's actually happening or not. No, Jesus knows you. He knows your pain. He knows the isolation and the hurt that your sin has caused you and that the hurt of the world has caused you. He doesn't view you as a problem to be solved. And so why is he worth following? And I don't know, I think the first two questions make a pretty good case as to why he might be worth following, but we'll talk about it a little bit more. 
This is also from uh, David Brooks's book. Um, I'm, I'm really into it right now, so just deal with it. Um, but he tells the story of, uh, of a guy named Dr. Ludwig Gutmann, which I don't know if I said that right, but that's how I said it. Uh, he was a German Jew who escaped from Nazi Germany, and he got a job in a hospital that served paraplegics, mostly men who had been injured in the war. And when he started work at this hospital, the hospital kept these men heavily sedated and confined to their beds. And yet Dr. Gutman uh, began to wake them up. He forced them to get out of bed. Uh, and he began doing different things, playing different games, throwing them balls, you know, just interacting with them. And the other doctors, they, they didn't understand his methods. And so they held the tribunal to call him out on his methods. And one doctor asked him, these are moribund cripples. Who do you think they are? And Gutman responded, they are the best of men. And Brooks goes on to say that it was his generosity of spirit that changed how he defined them. He continued organizing games, first at the hospital, then for paraplegics around the nation. And then in 1960, this led to the formation of the Paralympic Games. That, that those games were born out of one man, out of generous spirit saying, I refuse to see you as the sum of your injuries. I refuse to see you as paraplegics, but I see you as men. And just like Gutman refused to believe that these men were worthless invalids, just like Jesus didn't see the Syrophoenician woman or the deaf and mute man as the sum of what got them to that point in life, he doesn't see you as that either. That Jesus does not see you as the sum of your mistakes. He does not see you as the sum of your disabilities or your uncleanness. He doesn't care about your credentials he doesn't see you as a number or a statistic. He doesn't view you as a problem to be solved. And it's so important to realize this because it challenges us. We don't want to think of ourselves as dogs waiting for scraps that the children deserve first. We don't want to think of ourselves as deaf and mute. But Jesus is worth following because he doesn't see us as the sum of our condition, but rather the need of our hearts. And he is the one who meets that need. So what do we do with this? And I think these stories call us to two things. We've just seen who Jesus is, what he's like, and why he's worth following. So go follow Jesus. Go follow him. Like, it is an invitation, but it is also a command. Go and follow him. This is the further unfolding of Jesus' call to repent and believe. Both of these Gentiles got it because they knew their need. You can't respond to the call of the gospel until you know your need for it. I love one of the songs that we sing, uh, Come Ye Sinners, says all the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. And it doesn't matter what you're bringing to the table because in the eyes of decent Jewish culture, you couldn't get worse off than this woman. But I want you to think about this, that maybe... Maybe the stuff that you fear might keep you from coming to Jesus is the exact stuff that's driving you towards him in the first place. That it's knowing that need. But this story also has to change how we see those people. And we all have a group of those people. We all have the other that we, that we love to put in those categories and then write them off. I don't know who they are to you, but... If you were the one who was far off that Christ brought near, 
then the way that we see others also has to change. Matthew 8 tells us the story of a Roman centurion coming to faith. And Jesus says in verse 11 that many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That God is calling his people from all corners of the world and bringing them into his family, which is this group of people called the church. You will not truly begin to grasp this until you start to wrestle with the church and our shared confession that we rely on Jesus to give us what we need, not because we are good and we deserve it, but because he is good and he accomplished it. But it begins with this realization that Paul lays out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11, he lists off a bunch of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And as good little evangelical boys and girls, we use that as a bludgeon passage to say, see, I told you, you're out. But Paul goes on to say, for all this list of things, for, for drunkards, for idolaters, for adulterers, for homosexuals, for all, all the different things, Paul turns around and he says, and such were some of you. And yet, you were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus. And y'all, this is the hope for Jews and Gentiles and jaded Presbyterian pastors and Carson Newman students alike. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for what this story teaches us about the way that you love people who are outside of our acceptable demographic bounds. And Lord, how we also find ourselves as the ones who are outside of those bounds ourselves. And Lord, maybe tonight we just need to be reminded that we know this, we believe this, that we just need to be reminded that this is who you are and this is what you've done for us. And Lord, may this call us back to a, a, a deeper understanding a deeper love and a deeper joy for who you are and what you've done. And Lord, maybe we've never believed this. Maybe we refuse to. Maybe we have a hard time seeing ourselves as people who are as needy as this woman or this deaf and mute man. Lord, would you tonight show us our need for you? And Lord, would you so graciously fill it? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.